0: Whatever you're interested in, it may not have to be a clear niche. Actually, try to communicate things in a very interesting way that people will find intriguing. If you're trying in a genuine way, trying to add value to a conversation, I just think people are attracted to it on, on that basic human level and will start to kind of come out of the woodwork and find you.
1: Welcome to Top of Mind. A show where we speak with top marketers, creators, and leaders who are shaping the culture around us. I'm Stuart Hillhouse, and I believe that through great marketing, you can earn the privilege of occupying a tiny sliver of your customers' already overflowing brain. Join me today as we learn what it takes to become top of mind. There's a concept in investing that's called a tailwind, it's actually originally from sailing. And it means when you're going in the same direction as the wind, you don't need to work as hard. In investing, it's the idea that there's a massive shift happening in the market that will act as a tailwind for you and the companies you invest in. So these companies who are having a tailwind are going to grow no matter what, because the market conditions are right. Right now, there's a tailwind happening for creators who are sharing their content online. We're not totally sure who's going to be standing in five years and who the winners are. But one thing's for sure, is if you're in the game, things are going well for you. My guest today helps writers follow this tailwind by improving the quality of their writing and helping them succeed with their peers. He's a co-founder of Compound Writing and has one of the most elegant names ever created. Joining me today, I've got Stu Fortier.
0: It's an honor to be here, and I'm really excited to meet the real Stu, who I've been competing with for internet space. We decided it was finally time to merge instead of compete. So is your real name is your birth name Stuart? It is. I recently like some sort of like angsty teenager, I dropped the art. So now it's just Stu. As of about I guess I guess the official decision was made when I bought my Google domain my domain on Google Domains. I was like, I here here ever
1: after am Stu fortier, not Stuart. (laughs) I had the exact same thought when I was starting to starting this podcast and starting to write, I'm like, okay, if I'm going to start owning my name online, am I going to be Stuart or Stu? Like I need to kind of pick one and just always use it. I haven't followed that very accurately because I don't know about you, but I find myself introducing myself as Stu or Stuart, depending who I'm talking to. I don't know. It's weird. Do you do that too?
0: I've now done a hard, the unfortunate thing is that when anyone can call to email me, but my Gmail name is Stuart and like my Gmail address. And I, I there's just too many dependencies in that inbox to change it. So yeah. most people see that and they see Stu and Stuart and can't reconcile the two. So <laughs> I have made <laughs> a point to keep only on say Stu. Yeah, it's like, I'll respond to either, but I have actually done a hard line where I only say Stu now, but it was a long two-year transition of doing that. <laughs> okay,
1: now that we got that clear, we're good. So the theme of this talk is going to be about Writing and writing is an interesting topic because when you hear that, it kind of brings back old memories of like high school or like writing essays and just book reports. And like that was what writing meant for me for the first 20 years of my life was just like, oh, I'm in school. I only write when I need to submit an assignment. But what we're going to be talking about is like the fun writing. The the writing that you do for the pure pleasure of it, the writing you do to clarify your thoughts, the writing you do to communicate your new ideas to others, which, which is very different. Would you agree?
0: Yeah. I just think it's such a shame that that's how most of us are introduced to writing. I think it's a really bad habit that sticks with us. I, I still feel this pressure when I open up a new Google Doc and start writing something to write like I'm some sort of academic professor. And it's an insane impulse. And it's insane to me that we're taught in school that the important things to learn are things like grammar, how to do MLA citations, where a comma should go, because really grammar should serve communication and should serve the ideas that we use language to express. And there's actually all sorts of problematic elements of like what's considered proper English. Because like, Frankly, language is flexible and it should serve. It's only useful insofar as it is a helpful tool for sharing ideas clearly. And so if you just have a different way of communicating something, who gives a damn about how you're supposed to in an academic setting? So it really just, I don't know, like beats the joy out of writing. You know, when you're 16 years old, getting your knuckles slapped with a ruler by your mm-hmm. English teacher, because that's not where a comma goes. That's not what writing's about
1: at all no it's about communicating your idea like getting it across and when done properly it can be sloppy it can have grammatical errors as long as but and the, and if it, the person can understand what you're saying it means it was successful it doesn't matter that yes. you that you didn't use the proper the proper formatting or something like that
0: 100% and it's funny i i'll I'll spare your audience the rabbit hole but there's all this really interesting stuff with language in particular Where language just very quickly becomes localized. And if you just hang out with kind of your 10 friends and that's who you spend most of your time with, you'll start to speak like them. You'll start to develop your own expressions. You'll start to use language in kind of flexible ways, uh, you know, apply maybe a different meaning to a word, a double meaning to a word, or something that other folks don't. And over time, if you let a thousand years go by and ran the experiment enough, you would basically branch entirely from the native English language and like really start to communicate in a way that is useful for your specific context and the shared context of the group. So it's also really frustrating that we have like, there's, this is the only way that English should work across, you know, the the X billion people who speak it because it's very, it's very a local, it's a localized thing. It happens within our tribes. So anyways,
1: screw the rules. Language should be fun. (laughs) Writing should be fun. Writing should be fun. and it is. And now I'm finding that now, right? it's It is fun. Do you recall like a moment when you realized what writing was something you care about? Is this something that's always been in your mind? Yes, yeah, I keep going back to
0: this family tradition that I guess technically, maybe you started with my great-grandfather, actually, but I think definitely was a a tradition within for my father, and my grandfather um now deceased where we had a family tradition of writing letters to each other and this is going to make me feel way even older than i am but my dad and his dad would maybe every like 3 months or something write a letter you know when when i was born they didn't live in the same town anymore and just kind of communicate the major important events from the last 3 months share what was on their mind and it was like this nice well-paced thoughtful deliberate exercise versus the the daily text groups that we're all probably in with our Mm. close friends and family and all that which is great and i think has a lot of benefits but doesn't quite have the depth or richness of a written letter where there's really a deliberate effort to to craft and so anyways i kind of picked up that tradition actually wrote letters to my grandfather when i was growing up again every few months would do this And I just got a lot of like very positive feedback. It was like, maybe the bar is extremely low for like how well a 13-year-old writes a letter. So that, that was probably undeserved praise. I remember that being this bedrock for my relationship with my grandfather. He got a lot of joy out of it. I weirdly had fun doing it and I just kept it on through college and really up until his passing. And that just, I think, laid the foundation of like, uh, written communication is this very powerful relationship building tool, amongst many other things. Mm-hmm.
1: That's very cool. I remember getting similar feedback from my first kind of like public writing. I, I I don't remember if it was under my own name or if it was kind of under the company's name, but I was like, oh, I wrote a blog post, and that was my first kind of non-academic sharing of my work. And people were like, oh, this is this is good. Like, what? Really? <laughs> totally What was the first thing you would have shared online in that format?
0: <laughs> I'm embarrassed that I'm I'm truly embarrassed that I'm even gonna say this. But the I think the first actual blog post that I published, just I it's I've since tried to purge it from the internet. It's just so embarrassing. Was I had started right after college, started a software company that was in the cannabis space because it just gone legal in Colorado and California was clearly going that direction in the US. We kind of built a software platform kind of like the Yelp of cannabis and we had we'd had gone back and forth. We we were based out of Denver. We're like should we be should we allow folks who work at our company to use cannabis and like have a no judgment, no whatever issue with it whatsoever. And we decided like if cannabis is going to be destigmatized, then we shouldn't stigmatize it in our workplace and like not have, you know, Bongs out on the, on the desk or whatever, but you know, let people consume cannabis in a way that's responsible and good for them. And I, I like wrote a blog post about that, but I used some terrible, cringy headline that was like, "Why we let our employees smoke weed at work" or so, like something awful. And it was so funny. Like I think people, it was like I was had fun with it. Right? It was like a little bit of a jokey, tongue and cheek piece because I intentionally tried to make it sound a little bit more interesting and spicy than it was. But that was my first piece and just it was hilarious because everyone just was intrigued by it if nothing else. I've since was like that's not really the legacy I want to leave <laughs> on the internet. But I think that was my first like non-academic like published piece where I was like I'm making a statement. You know, just that the yeah. statement was potentially a little silly.
1: Yeah. Wow. So you, so with Compound and your previous company, you're you've been riding tailwinds, you've been you've been finding tailwinds <laughs> here there and everywhere and making making it work. Yeah, it's so funny with the online writing tailwind,
0: that just like, it really was a perfect storm. I had really been inspired by The Hustle, who who was, I guess, acquired this week by HubSpot. Yeah, yeah learning their story, Sampar's story, hearing him do some interviews on basically him, in a way, single-handedly getting this newsletter off the ground. And I saw a lot of its potential whatever at the time. It just kind of dawned on me that like, the scalability of writing, if that makes sense, and specifically with like an email newsletter, is kind of unbelievable because writing is the lowest lift, lowest production value means of communication, maybe next to voice or something. But I even think voice is a little bit harder. And you don't need a film crew. You don't need a Hollywood script. You kind of just need literacy, some, you, you know, some tools to write with, and ideas. And in the case of an email newsletter, you can be one person sitting on your couch on a Sunday. And if you have an audience, you can transmit your ideas to, you know, a million people, 1.5 million in the case of the hustle with, you know, just by hitting publish. And I just like that dawned on me and I started to really take seriously the potential. And then all this really, that was in like 2017, 2018, then all this cool stuff with Substack and the general rise of online writing, the narrative I think has really taken off in 2020. last year in 2020.
1: Yeah. And that's when I got involved and I have since kind of learned about it through you and a couple other people and it's it's wild. Like why why do you think it's kind of coming into its like email newsletters would have been one of the first inventions of the internet. It was like, oh, I'll just collect like I'll collect your email and then I'll start sending it. Like this isn't new, but why now is it important? That is actually
0: it's so funny cuz I I'm like tempted to give my gut reaction theories, but I actually think it is, there's so much beneath it. Because you're right, there were people writing email newsletters. I mean, it was one of the first use cases on the internet. I mean, people were really, right when email was invented and some of the protocols there, right when really basic web protocols were created, there were email newsletters. There's as, as time people have done them. So like, why is it then that they've had this resurgence recently? One of my theories is that like, With the proliferation of social networks, social networks centralized attention in a way that email just fundamentally can't because it's a one to one medium, if you will. Social net, like generally at the time, or whatever, social networks were able to create this center of gravity for like people going to discover new information and more or less became like the best distribution channel for just about anything because that's where everybody is. It's not just the people who subscribe to your stuff it's any of their social graphs your content could theoretically reach so i mean really in the last 10 or 15 years that's been the rise of social networks There's still mm-hmm. the internet's relatively new social networks are definitely new and naturally i think that sucked a lot of our attention like i want to build up my following on maybe facebook back in the day or not that never really happened but definitely Twitter. Mm -hmm. Now you see things like TikTok and and other social Snapchat, maybe people invest in building an audience in because that's where all the eyeballs are. But now everyone's also creating and publishing there. So it's just this sea of noise. And the inbox to me is the equivalent of being let in someone's living room. It's a very personal place. It's like, you only let in friends and family. You don't let everybody into your house. You don't let everybody into your inbox and you try not to let everybody into your social feeds, but it inevitably kind of happens. Yeah. So now I think people are waking up and realizing, geez, if I'm showing up on people's Twitter feed, which I think is a good strategy for like initially building some, you know, finding your, your initial fans. But like, if you want to keep a relationship with them, every time you're posting on Twitter, you're competing against every other amazing writer out there. When you send an email, the attention's already won. That person has asked for that email. You're likely competing with an email from their spouse asking to go pick up milk at the grocery store and a work email. And like, you actually are going to definitely stand out in a positive light, depending on what your content is. So I think people are waking up to that, and I think like it's probably it's there's going to be all these second order effects. Like my fear is like, well now the inbox is going to become a crowded mess, like as if it's not already. And like, then what happens? And then there's people like experimenting with SMS and stuff, which I think is like just a generally nightmarish, like dystopian idea. Mm -hmm. Like I would never want to get texted by (laughs) anyone. So it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. I but I think
1: that's roughly why, like the why now. Yeah, no, that's a great way of that's that's a really great analysis of kind of what the whole thought process is behind it. And for for even marketers who. The The job is to get people's attention. Now writers are finding that, yeah, you need to get people's attention, but then you also need to keep their attention. And that's why the quality matters so much. And that's why you have people who are known for quality, who don't need to play the games of like, be on TikTok. Bec- they don't need to do that because they've already earned the trust of uh, their core audience on their email list. And that is enough. That's actually like the highest value audience member. Whereas A TikTok person might not be worth that much because they never will buy your stuff or whatever you're trying to do with that audience, whether it's monetary or just pure. I don't know what I don't know what you would do otherwise, just kind of pure (laughs) creative incentive or something. (laughs) Yeah,
0: build some reputation. It's funny there are definitely and I know you've thought about the stuff too. It's like there's definitely intangible benefits of having a decent presence online, and like it probably does open doors a lot, even if it's not directly monetizable. It's like there are, you know, I can like understand why having more of an audience can be, you know, just generally helpful. But yeah, I think with email, it's like, that is your foundation of like the people who really just love your stuff and love in whatever in my context, that's like, you know, someone who blogs or, or writes a newsletter. These are the people who just actually really want to hear from you have invited you into their virtual living room And those are like the bedrock of anything you do. They're going to be the ones who are the first to go buy your book. They're going to be the ones who share your newsletter with their people, or there's going to be the ones who generally support you. There's so many like nice people that if they just like your stuff, just want to see you succeed. And I've been like, just amazed by that continually. Yeah. So anyways, and email is really, I think, generally speaking, the channel where there's more intimate interactions happen.
1: Was there any reason in particular why you started playing this game of creating content and sharing it and and accumulating audience members? I'm always curious oh to hear why Absolutely. people start get started. 1000%. So it it's a, it, it was born of a very practical thing.
0: Basically like I was at the time I had I was like a self-taught programmer and I had a, a second life as a startup CTO. So I ran engineering teams, started technology companies, a couple small tech startups, and frankly, just got a little bored with the work. And it was like, honestly, I can't imagine doing this for the next 20 years. Like, I don't really think I'm a natural born engineer. I think it's something I was able to do. So I just started thinking about the stuff I enjoy doing, writing being a big key activity. And stereotypically, you know, if you're driving through the richest part of town and you're pointing at the mansion, you're asking what people do for work. Typically one of the answers is not, Oh, well, you know, that's a writer. There's another blogger over there. (laughs) You know, like that guy wrote the, like, that just doesn't happen. Like that's usually not the career for writers. The stereotype is more the starving artist. And Mm -hmm. so I really like wrestled with this thing. I'm like, damn, the stuff I love doing is the stuff that basically doesn't make money. And this is extremely obnoxious and frustrating but i was like maybe that's not true like maybe there are ways to make this work and maybe this whole stereotype of the starving artist is largely grounded in a world where distribution is controlled by a small number of companies and people who basically decide the fate of you know creative people to for lack of a better word if you don't get a book deal what the hell are you going to do you got to go get a restaurant job on the internet very different. It's not easy. And I think it takes a very long time, but you don't need to get one person to say yes to you to succeed. Like one publisher does not control your fate. You can go build up again with enough work and effort. And if you have the privilege to be able to spend the time doing it, an email list with a few thousand people, you can sell an online course, you can sell, you know, you can monetize it a million different ways. And, It just all started to click for me, like how the things that I enjoy doing could be coupled with reasonably sound business models, how much the internet has changed the nature of media, publishing, all this stuff that a lot of other people have thought about for a long time. It really started to click for me in the last few years. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, this is like some of the opportunities here are ridiculous. And I wrote a whole blog post about it last year of like all the different business models of, of being a kind of a a creator whose work revolves around their writing. And I was like, hell yeah, you could definitely do this. And like probably more people can be successful at this than ever were successful in the traditional media world. Mm -hmm. And so that got me on my way. I just felt like I understood what was going on and that
1: kind of set me on my way. Very cool. We've danced, we've danced around distribution a little bit, but I'd like to hear what your thought is on distribution. Like how do you get in front of the right people In the first place, if you're trying to start on social or the newsletter, like how do you even find those people? And then how do you kind of nurture them and make them, make them pals of yours uh, and want to see your content continuously?
0: Yeah. David Perel had some good thoughts on this. I know we just jumped off the call with him, but uh, one thing, like, it's funny. I don't, I've somewhat impressed. Focused on a on a niche right now with compound, we definitely serve a very specific type of person. But if you look at my Twitter feed, and, and again, I don't have a huge audience or whatever. But if you look at my Twitter feed, it's not. It's I don't think you'd really kind of know what I do. You'd have some clues, but I, I do talk about a decent amount of stuff. Uh, same with my newsletter. Yeah. And so I'm not like I've always struggled with the like I I you know I don't feel like I have a clear positioning. But I've actually come, I've gotten over that and I'm like, if you can just sound interesting and try to provide value, people will be intrigued and kind of follow along. And so I think when I was just getting started, first of all, and this is kind of what David was saying, I think you do kind of need to like purge your first hundred, first like crappy tweets, crappy blog posts, like whatever junk you have to produce just to get over the hump, just kind of get those out of you. Don't expect much action. Don't, I mean... You know, grandma might like some of your tweets, but that's going to be about it. Just kind of like brace yourself for that and understand that it's not destiny. I mean, I had, I think like four or 500 followers going into 2020. I've now like 10 X that since then or whatever. Uh, and i have been on Twitter for a few years. So first and foremost, I think it's like, just understand it's going to take a very long time. Be okay with that. Second, it is like, whatever you're interested in, it may not have to be a clear niche, actually try to communicate things in a very interesting way that people will find intriguing. And I could go down a whole rabbit hole here. And I know a lot of people have a lot of good ideas, but you can honestly make the most boring shit sound super intriguing. If you just like frame it in a way that captures your same enthrallment with an idea and like other people will feel your energy and just be attracted to it. And Mm. like, as, as weird as that sounds, like people just like enjoy, it's almost like You'd rather have a, at a dinner party, you'd rather be sitting next to the person who's interesting to talk to than the guy, you know, regurgitating the sports scores. Like, come on, like, yeah. and that just plays out on the internet. It's like, if you're trying in a genuine way, um, trying to add value to a conversation, I just think people are attracted to it on, on that basic human level and will start to kind of
1: come out of the woodwork and find you. So I hope that's somewhat useful, but that's kind of no. just been my approach. I, I, I do agree and i think that's a really cool way of thinking about it is like you are just trying to be or hopefully like eventually you'll that'll become your personality and you'll will be interesting but by just making it public what you're interested in people will find you because that's just how distribution works like it they'll be attracted to that message and then they'll be curious. And then they'll click through. And that's how I found you somehow on Twitter. I have no clue how, but it was like, oh, there's yes. this guy. It was probably because it was like, wow, that's an amazing name. And then I clicked <laughs> through and the rest is history. But I think I didn't block you. I was close. I was like, who is this <laughs> second competitor? No, that's some really good points there. I, I, it's cool to hear people who think about it day in, day out, because I think about it when I get all anxious, like, oh man, no one's seeing my stuff. Yeah. I need to do better at this, but i'd may but to answer my own question, maybe I don't need people to see everything I'm doing because it maybe it's not all great and And David on that call had a really cool analogy that you you told me that was like your Twitter can be your stand up set like comedians yes. will practice bits for years in order to create then that hour-long Netflix special. like That takes years to build. And so they have to do hundreds and thousands of stand-up sets to build an hour's worth of content. So maybe it's okay that no one's receiving your stuff right now because this is you performing for an empty club and just bombing. But don't worry, you'll learn for next time what gets the reaction and what kind of comedian you even want to be. I think this is the great filter.
0: For who eventually starts to build up some degree of an audience. And I think this is where most people quit because it's pretty sane to quit. If you've been posting for a year or two years or even three and nothing's really happening, it's a pretty logical conclusion to think, okay, well, this is not going to work out. Like I'm going to stop doing this. But I think the reality is what you just said. It's like you are working out the kinks or whatever. And like, It's a really painful process, just to be completely frank. And there are just very, very few people who have ever gotten to the other side without some degree of this journey. And more specifically, I always love going back. James Clear's first tweet is like still live. And he has like 13 likes on it. And most of them are likes from people who found it later like me and realized it was his first tweet. And, you know, like one retweet and like nothing. And the article is pretty good, but like it's you know nothing totally groundbreaking. It's not obvious that he's going to go on to greatness. But eight years later, nine years later, whatever it's been, very different place. Four hundred thousand followers. I a million people read his newsletter now. Are you kidding me? Like mm-hmm. huge success. And it's just so easy to forget about that
1: that kind of the the trough that happens before. And it'll be cool to see how it plays out because. We're still on first generation of internet. This is the first cohort of internet celebrities to exist. If you even want to call them that, I wouldn't even call them that. They're just people who have do do good work and have mastered distribution. Let's just call it that. They're like that. Yes. That's all they've done is figured out distribution and then just continued to do the work. So they kind of wrote the first playbook, and now we're kind of re like reverse engineering it to be like, okay, how do I, where do I put the buttons on my website and stuff like that? But it's really in the grand scheme of things, we have no idea what's going to happen next. Like, are these people going to have a full career as a creator, or are they going to roll that into their next company? Or are they just going to say, okay, never mind, I'm going to be a hermit. Like I've made enough money, I'm just going to be a hermit and just write under a pseudonym or something. Like you have no idea. And everyone, that's kind of the beauty of it is it's an open-ended career path. Like it has benefits no matter what you want to do whether it's go out on your own or be an employee. I could not agree more. I think that we're building a civilization
0: from scratch on the internet and it replicates a lot of what happens in real life. But I think it also has these very unique elements. And one of them is like the fact that, again, I don't know if this is the best metaphor ever, but you know, if you were a blacksmith 400 years ago, like... You could basically sell your services to anywhere within walking distance at best. And the only people who knew about your blacksmith service would be the people in your village. And like that was the extent your, your market size was, you know, your physical health and ability to walk. <laughs> um, that's how far you could go. Obviously, on the internet, the equivalent is you could teach a million people how to do blacksmith stuff, you could service and find clients for your work all over the world. And you made a great point about distribution. One of the unique skills of the internet is going to be figuring out how to market yourself because you could be the best blacksmith in the world. And um, unfortunately, right now on the internet, you would also have to be a damn good marketer to be able to really get it out there. So it's a, it is a, a distinct skill set, and I think in a lot of ways, I think it's trending in a good direction where the internet's becoming a bit more meritocratic of like the best ideas and content finding their way to the surface. But that's sort of. That's sort of like that axiom of like how life can happen on the internet is very distinct. And I don't think we've really seen anything like it Mm. in the entirety of human history. And like you said, I think it also opens up many doors. You as a blacksmith, it used to be you're hitting hot steel and making it into shit. And like, that's the work. And that's all you can do with that skill set on the internet. You could, again, you could teach a course about it you could mm-hmm. get into really niche custom work that no one in your town could have ever bought but you know this this wealthy person in a different country wants right. to buy and now you make a career doing this very specific type of blacksmith work whatever and so that's new you could use your influence and clout just to open doors i've been able to you know host awesome people for conversations probably like you have with the podcast just by effect of having a little bit of a presence online some a little bit of credibility, having hosted some other great people that you can leverage for the next one. If I didn't have any online presence, I couldn't have gotten Scott Dickers from The Onion to do a call last week. It was like mm-hmm. super fun bucket list item. He's someone I really have admired for a while. But I think if I was you know didn't have some stuff he could check out, he kind of knew what I was about through some of the media I've put out on the internet. I think it'd be a harder sell to have a conversation with him. So yeah. I totally agree that, that a lot of doors open up. Yeah,
1: what did so? Just to kind of talk a little bit about compound the uh, the community that you've created in this. It's it's super unique in, in terms of business model. Uh, so we can get into that. Like I've t- I've been telling people about it, being like, yeah, it's not a course, and it's definitely not a um, pure play community. It has practical value as well as kind of access to people, and so i can kind of try to explain it but i'll i'll let you do the explaining but i'd like to hear what like version one was because i it's super cool to hear the early day story especially when you're trying to get customers out of straight like make strangers customers and i don't know if that was the way you you went but maybe if you could explain how or what the first test was to see like oh should this be a business that we continue to build
0: yes oh my god it's like It's still fresh enough in our minds to where I haven't rewritten the founding story to make it seem way more (laughs) glorious than it actually was. Um, The founding story is so funny. I I mentioned earlier, I was burned out with the work I was doing as chief technology officer of a series A startup. I was managing an engineering team. And this was like, I guess, late, maybe early 2020, late 2019. I was with my co-founder, Dan Hunt. This is pre-pandemic. So we were physically together. What a concept in New York City. And had this fun day walking around exploring the city, and we're just getting dinner, and we just kind of talked about like you know he was working on a project that he was maybe thinking about the next thing. I was definitely in a similar place, and we just started to talk about our Venn diagram of interests. Mine was writing; he's also a big writer. He doesn't quite publish as much as I do, but probably writes even more than I do. Uh, so that's part of his interest. And he was also really interested in niche online communities and like the idea of how vertical the internet lets you go and how specific you can be with the community and still be successful. You can think of all the weird subreddits out there with 50,000 people on them. It's pretty amazing. And so he had really started to think a lot about that. And we just kind of riffed and he was like, we should start kind of a community for writers. And my initial reaction was actually like, I always get a bad rap with like the, the phrase writers group. Cause I always think of like A bunch of people who have never sold a screenplay asking each other how to sell screenplays. You know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I always think of like the blind leading the blind, which is a little bit cynical uh, or extremely cynical, I should say. So I was, and I was like, I don't know if I would want to join like a writer's group. Like, what would that really do for me? Which is actually how we landed on the utility. So we were like, what would actually be a core utility function that even if somebody was the most like, you know, skeptical, i want to do my own thing i don't want to get involved in some hyped up puffed up community what would be valuable for them if nothing else and what would really help writers at a fundamental again utility level and for us it was it was editing and feedback and really that stemmed from this place of like to be successful as a writer your stuff has to be good it's the best way to improve your writing is to get feedback i it is something i had just learned at the time like and started to really appreciate it's something that he had kind of always always appreciated, and that like worked for me, where I was like you ha- I can't get feedback from friends reliably because I'm burning an ask every time I do it. It's hard to ask family for feedback because they'll do it, but maybe they're not writers or you know writing inclined so the whole principle was like, this would fundamentally be something you kind of have to do with people you don't know to be able to reliably have a supply of people who will review your stuff and similarly people whose stuff you'd be willing to review. And let's build a community that's centered around peer feedback, ranging from ideas for pieces of writing all the way through drafts and actual written pieces of work. So we like just, I literally talk about the power of having a little newsletter in the footer of my weekly newsletter, my personal newsletter. I put a call to action for anybody who might want to try out this writer's group. 15 people maybe replied and said they were interested. Maybe 10 of them ended up actually sticking around and we just kind of set up the Slack group where people were exchanging drafts with each other, people who had never met and giving each other high quality, thoughtful, constructive input on their writing. And that and the it would it was just transforming people's work. And that was the point at which we're like, all right, like we could definitely charge for this. We should definitely charge for this. And we actually, you know, turned on basically a paywall and started to really figure out the business
1: side. Cool. Yeah. So very similar to what it still is. Like you've added programming, but that core utility yes. still exists. And that's kind of the the selling point that even if even if you never participate in any of the lectures or or do any yes. meet anyone, you're still getting value from that group, which I think is very unique to compound. Because I've as as someone who's curious in this stuff, I join I joined dozens of Slack groups and like message boards. And I just want to see how other people are doing it. And I haven't come across one where it's, it's not built on your content alone as you, the moderator of the group and trying to encourage conversation, like conversation happens organically because there's a built in mechanism for people sharing a message and then people editing that message and then it kind of builds yes. that social capital within the group of people who are always giving. And then the people who are always taking, get kind of filtered out or realize that they're, nice. they're going against the culture of the group. It's very interesting.
0: You nailed it. I, my like thing there is like, there's a difference between a category and a purpose for a community. So category is like, I'm going to start a community for designers. Um, that's a category. A Category is designers. A purpose is like, why should we get together? Why should a bunch of designers get together? Is it to help each other find work? Is it to help improve our skills? Is it to collectively learn about a new design pattern? What's the purpose? Like, why should we gather? I always think of the TED conference and our mutual friend, Amanda, at Growth Machine, we talked about this. The TED conference is, I went mean, the last couple of years in Vancouver before the pandemic And what I love about what they do is like they are maniacally focused on the talks, as you would expect. But it's a whole week. There's like 20 talks a day, something crazy. I mean, your mind is melted by the end of it. It's utterly amazing. But they have all these amazing people in the audience. I was sitting out in the waiting room one day eating some beef jerky, and next to me is Sergey Brin. I'm like, holy shit, that's Sergey Brin. I talked to him, and that was like super fun. And there's all these amazing people. And so everyone at TED has always been like, TED, like the organizers of TED need to organize like, like meetups and like happy hours and like things for other attendees to meet each other. And for like thirty years, the TED organizers like refused to do this. They were like, "You are coming here for the talks. You're not coming here because we organize the best happy hours. Go organize your own damn dinner." Uh, <laughs> like I don't, you know, that's not our expertise. We are here for the talk, and the talk is the lighthouse that attracts the right people and the people who are going to end up in great conversation at lunch, at a little self-organized dinner later. And so I've always just admired and loved that focus and that like, I don't know if utility is the right word in their case, but like that clear sense of purpose. This is like what we gather to do is find the most interesting thinkers alive today, give them 15 minutes to share an idea and like contemplate that idea. We don't come together to go do jello shooters at the bar down the street with interesting people. That's not what we're about. So that is somewhat how I think about compound, where it's like, fundamentally, we're here to do the work. We're here to help e- support each other in peer editing uh, each other's ideas, construct pieces of writing together that would be much better than if you were done they were done on your own. And we'll have these great spillover effects that will attract the type of people who are interesting to connect to on a more in- casual basis. So
1: rant over but that's how i think about it (laughs) yeah it's unique it's unique and effective and i hope more groups as online communities continue to become the key like i mean if if the pandemic continues they're going to be the only place where you can get access to people but it's it's so true you have access to the coolest people because they are interested in the same things you are. You don't need to go looking for them. So you just need to find those. I love the analogy of a lighthouse just being the place where you could look up and be like, oh yeah, I'm in the right place. I know I know that I'm going to find someone interesting here. Yeah. And I'll, I'll dig myself
0: a hole here and draw a comparison. Ted, again, so focused on the talks themselves that you, they force the people who are not going to be interested to not attend because it's just so central to the event. So the only people who are going to attend TED generally are people who are willing to sit down for eight hours and listen to like, whatever the math is, dozens of scientists talk about really trippy out their ideas. Cause it's just, there's nothing else to do the whole day. Like that's the only thing that's happening. Whereas like something like summit, which is really cool. And there's amazing people who go there, but it's much more of like a chiller vibe. And it's like, as a result, it's like a trustafarian culture. It's like, a lot of people you meet, you meet a ton of amazing people, don't get me wrong, but I met a lot of like trustafarians who just were able to buy the ticket and like right. would definitely not sit through some scientists talking about blank. And so that's why I just love Ted because like, it's just any, any group I should say with this really clear defining, almost forcing function, which to your point ends up just filtering for the people most committed to this thing, which has the spillover effect of. It's just so much easier to connect with them because you have that immediate shared foundation.
1: So, amen. (laughs) I gotta get. I gotta get to a TED conference then. I've done the like TEDx ones, but they're they're a little less prestigious.
0: (laughs) No, I think they're still awesome. I've gone to those as well. I think there's a very similar. I think like
1: the ethos of TED shines in those events. Right. They will take it so seriously. They even if it's even if it's a a local person who's got a cool idea they take it seriously and so do yes. the, so does the audience because that brand now has such a strong reason for existing it's crazy how yes. strong that brand is it's amazing and i and again i think it's
0: great the tedx thing is great because it has given the same it's it's in, to some extent scaled that reverence for ideas that platform for open thinking and just like fresh takes and that just inevitably like the, the TEDx events that I've been to in my town, you inevitably find the most interesting people in your city. Like, Whoa, I didn't know these people were like (laughs) in my same zip code, working on these cool things. You meet people, you know, in the food line who are just really interesting. So anyways, I just, they're to me, like one shining example of a purpose-driven community that just sets, just
1: sets the bar very high. Yeah. I agree. I I wish we could keep going, but I'm gonna have to wrap things up here with you. I want to finish with your thoughts on kind of what the future looks like. I know that's an insane question to ask, but even in this next year, like where where it feels like something is going, something is happening. The the tailwind is there. Like it's and you can also there's there's proof as. Well, Tangible proof as well that this is something that is, has value in the market as well. It's not just kind of like a fun project thing. Like Twitter just bought a newsletter company. So there's, there's effort to make these into fully fleshed out business models and, and there, there's now money on the table. So I'm just wondering because you have so much contact with people who are a lot of amateurs, but then also a lot of professionals who do this full time how you're seeing this next year of kind of content play out. Like, what do you think, what are you thinking about in that, in that world? God, it is so, I mean, every day I'm
0: inevitably thinking about this for like, you know, 12 to 14 hours a day or whatever. And it's so funny because I find myself having so few convictions about it. I think there are a few meaning like this thing could just go so many directions I think there are a few general trends that I would bet on and definitely am trying to bet on with compound. But one is like, I think quality is going to become even more important. I think the youth can think of early internet days with like keyword stuffing because the Google algorithm was too dumb to know that if you put the word, you know, new purse in your HTML, like 500 times, that didn't actually mean it was 500 times more valuable than Mm you know, a a better site. So like forever, there have been these like easy exploits of the internet to like garner attention, hijack algorithms and like direct them towards your thing in like a disingenuine way. I think those are getting like whittled away pretty quickly and that in its place will be the judgment and taste of, of people, of users. So my general bet is on like higher quality content being a place where you should keep investing no matter kind of what your context is, it's just a general rule of thumb. I think it'll take a while though. And I think there's a lot that has to change because I think the other thing that's happening is like, I don't know if you feel it, I definitely feel it, sheer overwhelm of information and media. Like Mm -hmm. it's just, I feel like I'm totally drowning some days. And I think that's going to drive, it's almost like early day of cigarettes or something where it's like people will wake up to kind of the harmful effects of this stuff society, like, first of all, there's probably going to be some degree of legislation that comes in. I don't know how much it'll affect the information overwhelm problem, but culturally there's going to be a shift in how we, I think, interact with a lot of these tools. Mm -hmm. And I think we'll value a little bit more serenity and a little bit more peace and try to get away from our dopamine chasing scrolling. Cause I think a lot of people are just understand it doesn't often lead anywhere productive so that's another trend is like a calmer internet as maybe as somewhat counter narrative as that sounds because the internet has seemingly only gotten more noisy, but I think there's people will react when something reaches a breaking point and will want something else. So yeah, I think like the social networks in the future will be less polarized. I mean, I hope, but I, I also think we'll be less polarizing and like uh, optimizing for the wrong types of things. TikTok is kind of a fun example of like, honestly, a step in the right direction Every video on there gets 100 a, a views before it, the next 100 people see it. And you end up by the time you get to someone's for you page, you're seeing stuff that's been filtered through a lot of people. And it's usually pretty high quality or like it's very interesting. And I think like that is a step in the direction we're going to head, which is just like a higher signal internet. So those are a few things. So you can kind of take whatever action items you take from those, but those are like the trends that I'm like betting
1: on. Yeah. That's that's the right way of thinking about it is about trends rather than the actual the specifics cuz next week we could have the same conversation and all of a sudden some part of the internet has caught fire and another part yes. is, as has has cre- been created like that it's moving so quickly and I totally feel the same as you sometimes where I just can't get things done because there's too many things I yes. should I should be knowing about but I don't need to know about everything like that's the other thing is kind of your point about being the blacksmith and only having access to ideas that are walking distance. Now it's endless amount of ideas all the time. That doesn't always have the greatest results. So having an output is always helpful, which is why I've taken up writing. And and it allows me to kind of filter it through myself and then create an asset that I can look at and be like, oh, cool, that's how I thought about that thing 18 months ago, which is another kind of... The artifacts of writing are also very cool. Oh, I know if we had more
0: time, that would be a fun one to riff on. Cause it's such a powerful, even if no one reads your stuff, there's such a great benefit to writing. I bet I'm sure you're the same as me. I bet you've learned and retained so much just by writing about it, where it's like, even if three people read this I, by, by writing, I have actually <clears throat> retained and found a bit more signal mm. than a typical session on Twitter would have yielded. So
1: yeah, a hundred percent. And I make a, I've, forced myself to make a habit of putting my takeaways, like always summarizing that last paragraph that I wrote, be like, what's the, yes. what's a, what's the point of this, especially yes. when you're having, when you're writing for others, like you're writing for yourself, but if others were to come there, do they have to read the whole paragraph or can they just read that yes. sentence? Cause that, that paragraph, me writing that paragraph was a lot for me. Here's the thing <laughs> for you is the takeaway. Yes.
0: Totally, it's a lovely way of thinking about it. It's like that's value that you can create for other people. It's like the distillation process. But yeah, yeah. I agree. We'll have to do yeah. round two.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, awesome. Well, you can check out more about Stu on Twitter at Stu Fortier. I'm pretty sure. Yes, you got it. And uh, and then CompoundWriting.com is the place to go check out Compound. And even if you have no interest in Uh, being a writer, just go look how they position themselves because it's really cool how they talk about it. And so if this idea of creating like value first products or communities is interesting to you, definitely go check out Compound Writing because they do a great job of it. Amazing.
0: Appreciate it. It was a blast to be here. Thanks for having me. Cheers, Stu. Awesome.
1: If you enjoyed anything that you just heard, you're going to absolutely love what I'm about to tell you. If you go online to stewarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button, you'll be added to an email list where I share exclusive content related to this show. This is where I'm going to share my key takeaways from each episode, including my highlights, top of mind takeaways, and next steps that you can do to put this advice to action. I also share some real life breakdowns of marketing campaigns that I'm seeing around and how I'm using it in my work. So head on over to stuarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button to get your first email. Looking forward to seeing you there.